So we are in the middle of a study of Proverbs, and uh, historically, Proverbs has been thought about as this how-to guide to life. And while there is plenty of practical wisdom in the book, uh, I think it's a misnomer to think that it's just, uh, here's, a, here's a bunch of things that we ought to do, now go do them. Uh, I don't think that's at all the theme of the book. It is more the wisdom of God that shows up in this world, that God's wisdom is embedded in this world, and the book of Proverbs is reflecting that. And then when our life is outside of God's design, it's his grace that flows in, heals us, and even allows us to then maybe even seek to live these things out. So the book of Proverbs, yes, has a lot of things and suggestions for us of what to do, but if you're anything like me, it oftentimes your life doesn't line up. And it's more humbling, like we've talked about many times, like a mirror that I see myself rightly as opposed, uh, as opposed to, oh yeah, Keith, now go out there and knock it out of the park. Uh, I'm humbled rather than uh, just feel like I am now uh, empowered. And so uh, the beautiful thing is that doesn't mean let's, don't lo- let's uh, not talk about God's design. Just because I fall short, it doesn't mean let's make ourselves feel good and, you know, just be like, that's okay. No, God speaks his design into this world. And the more we look at it, the more humbled we become because we fall short. But then the more that drives us to need his grace. And we looked at a couple characters in the book of Proverbs. We looked at the fool. We looked at the simple person. We looked at the scoffer, the mocker. We looked at the friend. Todd last week uh, had, had us look at the idea of speech and what does Proverbs have to say about it. This week, we're going to look at the family. And I'm not sure there's any more, uh, any greater topic that humbles us than the family. Marriage, parenting, and being a child in a home. So, uh, you know, let, let's... Uh, understand that God is going to put forth his design of family in this world, and we are going to feel like we fall short. But that doesn't mean we walk out in shame. It drives us more and more to our Savior in need of his grace and his mercy. So we're just like every week, we're going to be bouncing all over the book of Proverbs. So have your fingers ready, uh, or you can follow along on the screen. And uh, so Why don't we stand as we just express our reverence and honor for the Word of God as he is going to speak, and we're going to look at two different aspects of the family. First, marriage. Second, parents and children. Uh, And just be forewarned that some of this might be PG-ish. Okay. Uh, Proverbs 18, verse 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in in her love. Proverbs 21. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Let's turn to, no amens. Uh, Let's turn to uh, Proverbs 10. (laughs) I heard you. Uh, (laughs) uh, Proverbs 10. Uh, 
A wise son makes a glad father, and a foolish son a sorrow to his mother. Proverbs 22, verse 6, a familiar verse. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. But sobering, as as we think about kids, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. But the rod of discipline drives it farther, or drives it far from him. For parents, as we seek uh, what is good for our kids, Proverbs 23, 13, and 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol, which is the Old Testament word for hell. If you discipline your child, you will save him or her from hell. Really challenging words from the scriptures. Why don't we pray and ask God to be uh, the one who speaks to us this morning. God, uh, we need you. And as we think of our families, our, our marriages, our parenting, even God, how we live as kids in our home, Father, would you be with us? Would you, by your Spirit, uh, show us the truth of these things? Show us uh, by, by a mirror uh, who we are? And then, God, would you restore us by your grace? And we just thank you uh, that you are with us, that you are God, and that your grace and your mercy to us is not dependent on how well we function. It's just uh, more proof that we need it. And God, uh, just bring that this morning to us and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you would please be seated. Over the last couple of years, there's a phrase that has caught in, or caught uh, kind of steam, and that's the idea of toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity, a view that, uh, that our culture and often uh, many articles and blogs and different things uh, kind of push, that, uh, push back on the idea of the domineering tendencies of men. And in its truest definition, we would all reject the, the using of strength to intimidate or strength to dominate uh, anybody around them. But it seems that this phrase used in our culture, toxic masculinity, uh, has in some way grown just uh, to reject being a man. Uh, and that the narrative of our culture is seeking to crush almost any distinction of gender. And uh, the amazing God-given identities that come from those, from those genders and those identities that God gives, our culture seems to be pushing them down. So you have toxic masculinity, this, this changing of the language of gender. You know, culture will say, we're all the same. But the Bible declares... No, we are quite different, and beautifully so. Couple these cultural trends with a decrease in the marriage rate. It's it's declined significantly since the 1980s. And a decreasing birth rate. And it's hard not to make the case that the family, as God has designed it, is under attack. But yet, study after study after study 
point to the positive effects of families. One recent study that published the same findings, uh, you know, they fund another study to say the same exact thing. This put out by the Institute of Family Studies. Great website, by the way. Uh, Posted again these results of how does somebody avoid poverty. So, you know, our culture is tons of resources going to how do we keep people out of poverty? And it's programs, it's funding towards this and that. Three things. Finish high school. Number two, get a full-time job once you finish school. If that's high school, college, grad school, whatever, get a job. Get a full-time job. And number three, get married before you have children. That is the recipe to stay out of poverty. No government funding needed. But it feels like, wow, that's pretty simple. That's it? And study after study after study says yes. That's the predominant trend of this world. Now, of course, there are amazing single parents who provide for their children and raise them. Uh, It's not discounting that at all. But the point of the study that if child-rearing is hard for married couples... Can you imagine how difficult it is to parent and to raise a family without a partner? And even further, there again, we we see the wisdom of God embedded in this world. That God says marriage matters. God says family matters. Dads matter. And so toxic masculinity that tries to push against all of these things, God is saying very clearly, there's a design and it's embedded in this world. It's the wisdom and the heart of God, the character of God put into this world, and that's why the studies continue to bear it out. Now, before we go too far, this is where we need to hit pause again and recognize that uh, this is a topic where we could so easily walk out of here feeling defeated and holding our heads down in shame. You know, because when we start talking about marriage, parents, children, family, all of these things, we're going to immediately hear and think about all the things that are wrong, all the things that are broken, all the things that are not true about us or our families, or the things that are deficient, or maybe the family that you came from. And there is a temptation then to say, all right, let's just kind of downplay what God's design is. And I think the book of Proverbs is saying, "Let's let's not do that. Let's state it very clearly and then run to God for his grace. And so the first aspect of family is rooted in a husband and a wife. Now, there's a group of us, so I could write it plural, but I wrote it singular on purpose because there ought to be one husband and one wife. Uh, And so we we read it already in Proverbs 18.22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Now, you're going to hear all of these references to a husband because the predominant voice of the book of Proverbs, be it Solomon or other sage wisdom teachers, is a father to a son. You'll see my son, my son, my son, my son. And so all of these things are spoken to husbands. Please hear me. This does not negate that if you find a husband, you find a good thing. But the predominant voice of this book is a father to a son. That's why, it's, that's why it is he who finds a wife finds a good 
thing. The idea of marriage is a favorable thing. God brings it into our life, and it is good. That's why in Genesis 2, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. It is a good thing. It is found not just good, but it is foundational. There, there again, we see the, the wisdom of God embedded in this world that a husband and a wife, a marriage, is the foundational building block of societies. And it's just interesting. So put that sentence in context of a decreasing marriage rate and then even decreasing childbirth rate. It's just a really interesting move of our culture uh, at times away from just the very design of God of how things flow. It's great that, you know, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And then the last chapter of Proverbs, almost the entire chapter of Proverbs 31, is devoted to the glory of a godly woman, a woman who fears the Lord. We're going to look at Proverbs 31 on Mother's Day. Usually don't preach a Mother's Day sermon, but you'll get one out of Proverbs this year. (laughs) All right. Um, But, so when we think about husbands and wives, uh, first thing we have to see is that it is a gift to be enjoyed, okay? Husband and wife, marriage is a gift to be enjoyed, and, and the way it is ought to be enjoyed is a permanent relationship. So, now this is said in the negative uh, as uh, the, the, uh, the father is speaking to the son about one who is leaving uh, the companion or her spouse of her youth and forgets, but what's the, what's the word that de- describes the relationship here? is that she forgets the covenant of her God. The idea of covenant is a pledge of relationship. Uh, and and when, when this word is applied to God in relationship with his people, a covenant is a bond made in blood initiated by God that if this bond is broken, there is blood as the consequence for it. And remember, uh, that's why when God made that covenant, that bond with Abraham, he put Abraham to sleep, and then God was the one who pledged himself to faithfulness because he knew Abraham would not be faithful. And it was only God's blood that was on the line for this covenant bond relationship. That's the same word that is used in the scriptures to speak about a husband and a wife. A covenant is meant to be permanent. And, uh, you know, even in Malachi 2, you'll see that's a famous chapter on divorce, that you've neglected the wife of your youth to whom you have, uh, to whom you've been faithless. You've been faithless to her, though she's your companion and your wife by covenant. And so it's this idea of covenant that marriage is a gift to be enjoyed because it is a permanent relationship. Okay? But then, in that permanence, it is also meant to be cultivated. And this is where it gets PG. Why is it that we only talk about the negative aspect of physical intimacy? The negative aspect of sex to avoid it before marriage? Or The writer of Proverbs is, is unashamed in glorying in the enjoyment of a husband and a wife. Now, it, it, but we, we hardly talk about it in positive light. And that is a shame. 
Because this is a gift of God to be enjoyed for a husband and a wife. Proverbs 5, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated, yes, drunk, intoxicated always in her love. Verse 20, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman or, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? There's the warning, but the beautiful promise is God's gift of marriage is ought to be enjoyed, but it's in the permanence of, of that relationship that sexual intimacy grows and is God's ordained design uh, for families. It's interesting. It's interesting how often we fail to talk through the beauty of a husband and a wife uh, enjoying each other. Think about the last movie that you have seen that describes that between a husband and a wife. You'll, you'll watch 99 movies to one that actually celebrates uh, physical intimacy in a marriage. It's amazing. Uh, and actually, when we watch it, it's weird that you might feel uncomfortable watching it. Note yourself next time uh, when it actually shows up. It's, it's almost as if we've inverted the order that God has designed to give the gift of uh, a husband and a wife, marriage as a gift to be enjoyed in its permanence and to be cultivated. So, but what's interesting is that it's not just easily or to be enjoyed, but it's so easily undermined that this gift of marriage is easily undermined. Okay? And we, we laughed earlier at one of these uh, verses. There's actually three or four of these verses in the book of Proverbs. Uh, it's better to live in a corner of the housetop uh, than, to, uh, than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Remember, the voice is a father to a son. This does not mean that only wives would fall into this category. Okay? That is not at all what this is intended to be. But quarrelsome conflict is amazing what it does to a family. It destroys, right? It undermines. You'd rather live on your roof than be in the home that is laden with conflict. This verse in 20, 21, 19 says it's better to live in the desert than to live with quarrelsome or fretful woman. Same can be true of a man as well. Another one, a continual dripping on a rainy day. You know that bloop, bloop, how annoying that is. Is a quarrelsome wife there alike. Uh, actually, it goes on. To restrain her is to restrain the wind. Basically, you can't grab it. And to grasp oil in one's hand. It's like holding water in your hand. Now, before uh, people start looking only at wives, it is amazing. It is amazing the grip of quarrel, uh, quarrels, fights, anger, conflict, uh, kind of disdain, and... You know, that that just has this way of destroying intimacy, destroying homes, and destroying uh, 
marriages and, and that even it's kind of like holding water in your hand you can't hold it you can't get a grip on it you must be changed by the grace of god uh, in order to see any kind of healing it's not like you can just get a grip on your anger it's like god has to get a grip on your anger and soften it and soften our hearts and so it's so easily destroyed uh, through those things but also what else destroys uh, marriage uh, is the idea of looking elsewhere right so right before that enjoyment passage in proverbs 5 the father is telling the son drink water from your own cistern meaning your own well flowing water from your own well. Basically, that's an illusion. That's an illusion to physical intimacy and to drink water from the well that God has given you as opposed to looking elsewhere. The Tenth Commandment is what? You shall not covet. And the first thing is you shall not covet your neighbor's house or you shall not covet your neighbor's wife why because looking elsewhere destroys families it destroys marriages Uh, and the book of proverbs sees marriage is something to be enjoyed but it is so easily undermined and cut down by conflict and also by looking elsewhere but where do we see the gospel in this where do we see the gospel in, in the midst of many people struggling in marriage that it is not an easy relationship to, to grow, to flourish, to cultivate? What does Jesus call us as his people? He calls us his bride. I don't think he's talking about individuals. He's talking about us as his church, collective. He calls us his bride. Tim Keller went on to say as he was thinking of marriage as it relates to the bride of Christ, you know, keep in mind that Jesus made a covenant, that bond made with blood, with the Father to come to earth and make us, his church, his partners. And when he got here, we crucified him. Yet we're the bride of Christ. And you might be saying, man, that sounds familiar. I'm married to somebody who crucifies me. Keller goes on, maybe you think your spouse is crucifying you, but Jesus' spouse, the church, really did crucify him. Jesus got into the worst marriage, the marriage from hell. And that marriage was the marriage with us. And, And the question he asked was, do you see Jesus staying with us in a terrible marriage? Do you see Jesus giving us the ultimate faithfulness, the ultimate spousal love, being faithful to us and being faithful to his covenant with us even while we were not? The gospel is depicted in terms of a marriage and we see the amazing grace of God in that. In a sense, I was just thinking that forgiveness has to be rooted in the center of a marriage. It can't just be, go love your wife better, guys, or wives, love your husband better, because then we walk out of here and we fail quickly. That forgiveness, reconciliation, uh, repentance before each other cries out for a work of God's grace in our marriages and in our families.
in full confession, uh, this week of all weeks is the last week I should be preaching on family. Truly. This is, you've lived through those weeks where it's just, where it is just hard. And you're not, you don't hold yourself up as any kind of uh, example of anything. Uh, And then God says, Keith, you're going to preach on marriage and the family. (laughs) Linda asks, hey, what are you preaching on tomorrow? I'm like, hey, I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) It's proof that preaching is not in the power of a preacher. Preaching is in the power of the word brought about by the power of the Spirit because I come to you as a failure teaching you about things that I yet understand and I need God's grace to heal. Marriage, parenting, are you in the same boat? My failure, your failure doesn't take away the power of the word of God. This is what changes us. This is what heals us. This is what we need. And so if you're sitting here and you say, I need to confess to to your wife or your husband, do it when you leave in the car. Don't let any time pass, please. When we were live streaming these, these services, Todd and I would laugh how many times we would leave the service, go home, and we're, we walk in the house apologizing and asking forgiveness. Because when you see yourself in the mirror of God's word, it ought to humble you and bring you to repentance, not only before God, but before your family, maybe even your wife. And so husbands and wives, but then also parents and children. So when we think about uh, parents and children, there's this amazing potential for joy and sorrow. So when family's going great, it's like elation. When family is difficult, there is deep grief right? Joy and sorrow. So listen to these verses as the Proverbs lays them out. So Proverbs 10.1, a wise son makes a glad father, and a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Proverbs 15.20, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Kind of fits in perfectly with uh, the sixth commandment. We already talked about the tenth. The sixth commandment is honor your father and mother. The word honor uh, comes from the same word that we get the Old Testament word glory. Uh, that it, it speaks to the weight or the weightiness or the heaviness uh, of something. And so the glory of God is God's weight and his heaviness. So to honor our parents is to not treat them lightly. It is to recognize the weight of the relationship that God has established. Honor your father and mother. And I would say even when they are not honorable, there's a call because the relationship 
begs it of God because God has established it. Proverbs 17, 21. He who sires a fool gets himself sorrow. And the father of a fool has no joy. Keeps going. Uh, 1926. He who does violence to his father and chases away his mother is a son who brings shame and reproach. We'll end on a good one. 23, 24, and 25. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. So it's, we, we bookended it with, with kind of joy, but there's deep sorrow. And as we, as you, if you go back and look at all the passages, especially the ones that relate to parents and children, listen to all of these words that are in these verses. All of these things that we would say, wow, family is difficult. The word despise, resent, forsake. Does not listen, sorrow, no joy, grief, bitterness, ruin, shame, reproach, violence, curses, squanders, mocking, and scorn. Now go out there and get them. We need the grace of God. We need the power of God. It is astounding how difficult these relations can be, yet it is God's design for this world. The building block of society is marriage and a family, and it shows itself over and over and over. It's how the world works. And so why are parents given to children? A lot of different reasons, but two kind of come to light quickly in the book of Proverbs. One is instruction, and the second is discipline. Instruction and discipline. So instruction, it was actually quoted in the movie last night when the wayward son returned uh, to his family. Uh, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Notice that it is both a father and a mother who are instructing children. Okay? When they instruct, bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. The reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. So children, your parents' instruction is life to you. That's why Proverbs 22, verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now again, these are proverbs, not promises. You know, you read all these things in context. A faithful parent can train their child and there still can be waywardness. But there is a predominant theme of the training, the instruction of a mom and a dad that instruct that child and uh, that they, they are walking in the ways of the Lord. 
children, students, you need your parents' instruction for you to live in this world. And yet, when they speak to you, your heart rebels against it, naturally. You know, get off my land. (laughs) You don't want to listen. You don't want to hear these things. It is there that that Paul writes um, about the sixth commandment. Honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment with a promise. And that your days may be long in the land that the Lord gives you. Honor your father and mother. Train up in a child, train up a child in the way he should go. And so if you're one who struggles to hear and to heed the word of your parents, we've read this once before, that it may go well with you. Proverbs 30, 17, the eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. That's a staggering picture of the effects of listening or not listening, submitting or not submitting, obeying or not uh, obeying your parents. Instruction. But then also, discipline. So folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. That it is God's design that parents would discipline their kids. No kid likes it. But it is proof that you are loved. Because God disciplines those he loves just like a loving father or mother disciplines those they love. And that's why in Proverbs 23 we read earlier, don't withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him, he'll not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from hell. Amazing impact of the role of a parent in in the the realm of a child. And then in 29.15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. And so if you have uttered these words, students, children, uh, if you have said, just leave me alone, That is the most unloving thing your parents could do to you, is to leave you alone. They are called before God because a child left to himself will not go well. Because folly is bound up in the heart of a child, and it is God's gift to you that they would drive it out of your life. Letting you go is the most unloving thing they could do. And yet your heart is saying, that's exactly what I want. Do you see the the disconnect between what your heart wants and what is God's design? And it's, it's in this realm, though, parents, when we discipline, isn't it easy to give up? Isn't it easy? Like, is any of this mattering? Is any of this taking root? Uh, am I really doing this rightly? Maybe I should back off. Proverbs 29 or 1918. It's truth and humor all at the same time. Discipline your son, for there is hope. And don't set your heart on putting him to death. (laughs) So teenagers, when you get to that point where your parents need to leave the room, 
the second half of this verse is probably your, your saving grace, okay? Uh, that isn't it true that the Old Testament writers understand the heart of parenting? That kids will test us to no end and we will feel like that second part of the verse. And God's saying, please keep disciplining because there's hope in it. Keep on when you are depicted by that second part of the verse. Keep on because in it there is hope for you and your family. So what are the tendencies? So instruction and discipline. So for instruction, uh, parents, the tendency is to easily not instruct. You know, just take a back seat to kind of give up. Think it's not working. Children, the tendency is to not listen. to, To say, leave me alone. Give me some space. There's a tendency of folly in both of those things, and God is calling families to follow his design. That's instruction. Discipline. Again, parents saying, you know what, you know, I'm not going to just, you know, go after it and discipline. I'm not going to hold the line. Or you go so far that you're excessive in that, because finding that balance of parenting is just nearly impossible, is it not? It's because it's hard, I'm going to give up. That's the tendency and the temptation of parents. To give up and think it's not working. Children, when you're disciplined, your tendency and your temptation is to resent your parents for it. To reject it rather than receive it. Those are temptations of the heart. But wise children know that their parents are struggling to discipline and instruct. So kids, that's the secret. We are oftentimes clueless as to exactly what to do we know we have to discipline because you're out of the will of god what is the wise course of doing that god by the power of the spirit lead us it doesn't negate the move of a parent it just says we are in need of god's wisdom to do it well and so when you push back on it you actually make your life harder You think you're making it easier, but you're making it tons harder because you're adding all these things. So wise children know and will let their parents struggle to discipline and instruct. Foolish children will try to use that struggle against their parents. Okay? So if your parents call me this week and say, my kids just used that against me, we might have a conversation. Because that is not this design, because wise children will realize that their greatest gain in life will be to submit to their parents' discipline and instruction. Especially when you, the child, disagree vehemently with what your parents are doing. That your greatest gain will learn how to submit to that, even when you disagree. Because fast forward 20 years and you disagree with your boss... And if you haven't learned to submit to things you disagree with, you will be fired on the spot and you'll be looking for work. But there's something that we have to learn what it is to submit. Foolish children will reject whatever their parents impose on them, even when it makes sense. The wise and the foolish, the the, the effects of instruction and discipline, family is just flat out hard. But the, way, the reason it works is the idea of covenant. 
that it goes back to the permanence of the relationship. It's not that, well, I don't like you and I'm, I'm out. It's the permanent covenant bond that makes all of this work. Why else would we do stuff so hard? That God puts in the fabric of this world that family and marriage and parents and children are what build strong cultures. And as we do that, we see a generational effect. It's not just for you and your immediate family that grandchildren are the crown of the aged. And the glory of children is their fathers. And we watched that movie last night, Like Arrows. And in that movie, we talked about the generational effect of parenting. Um, and, uh, and, and so it was based on Psalm 127, that behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of a womb uh, is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. And we counted up, Perry led us in this, that of the guys that were there, 102 children and grandchildren were represented in that room. It was, it was a good group, but it, it, you know, that's a lot of children and grandchildren. And when they themselves marry and have kids, between kids and spouses and their children, that room has the, has the easy uh, way of impacting four to five hundred people. Maybe not exactly directly, but incredible influence. A generational effect, that's enough to change the world. Not by going to China. Not by being a missionary, but by living faithfully what God is calling you as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a parent, faithfully living that in your home. You only have to go about 10 yards out of your bedroom to live the mission of God that he's calling you to right in front of you. And you can have generational, multiple hundreds of people impact because of that. That is staggering. But yet it's the building blocks of society that God has put the wisdom in this world. And what would it look like for us to chase after the things of God in our homes and to raise up kids that know the Lord and that love him and that we're willing to follow God into very difficult things, things that only we'll be able to do by his grace. Let's pray. Uh, God, um, I just pray that you would be in our midst and in our families. God, uh, sin in the middle of a family, pride, anger, uh, it's amazing how difficult these relationships are. But God, would you sustain us? Would you give us a picture of the glory of that, the beauty of that, that a healed relationship is oftentimes even more glorious than one that never broke? And Father, uh, that your redeeming grace would be all over our marriages and our families. God, I pray that you would raise our kids to know you, to love you, to heed wisdom, to be willing to submit even when they don't like it. God, I pray that uh, as parents, you would give us wisdom and tenacity and endurance. God, that you would give us love, that you would uh, sustain us in uh, oftentimes when we feel like we are failing over and over. God, would you, because of a faithful walk in the same direction, God, would you use the efforts of our families as we walk together, God, to raise up generations of, 
of kids uh, and children and grandchildren that know you and love you. God, use us in that process. And God, would you sustain us by your grace? In Jesus' name, amen.